Hello and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications. Smithsonian Magazine, People.com, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, the Chicago Sun-Times, the New York Times, and today I'm going to start with an article from the Kansas City Call about baseball legend Buck O'Neill. The title of the article is, John Buck O'Neill Takes His Place Among Legends in Baseball Hall of Fame Class of 2022. It was written by Ann Rogers and was published in the Kansas City Call July 29, 2022. At the start of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum tour, there is a black and white photo of a young boy. He's lying on his stomach, chin in his hands, gazing at the camera with two baseball bats in front of him. We don't know who he is, nor when the photo was taken. All we know is that Buck O'Neill loved this photograph. He stopped to look at it every time he walked through the exhibit, before his voice and laughter were carried through the halls as he told stories of the Negro Leagues and its legendary players. I think it reminded him of a young Buck O'Neill dreaming of having an opportunity to play the game that he loved, Negro Leagues Baseball Museum President Bob Kendrick said. It's encapsulated in that photo. O'Neill's dream took him many places until his death in 2006 at the age of 94. He began his baseball career barnstorming before signing with the Memphis Red Sox in 1937. In 1938, his contract was sold to the Kansas City Monarchs, the team with which he would spend the rest of his playing career and in the city he would call home. A three-time All-Star Negro World Series champion, O'Neill was a standout first baseman for the Monarchs and became a player-manager in 1948. In 1955, he became a scout. Players he signed with the Cubs and then the Royals included Lou Brock, Oscar Gamble, Lee Smith, and Joe Carter. In 1962, O'Neill became the first black member of a coaching staff as part of the Cubs' College of Coaches. And then came perhaps the most impactful chapter of O'Neill's baseball life, his mission to keep the stories of the Negro Leagues alive. The founder and chairman of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, O'Neill dedicated the last 16 years of his life keeping Negro Leagues players alive through his gifted storytelling. That all led to Sunday when O'Neill, at long last, was inducted into the Hall of Fame, having been voted in by the Early Baseball Era Committee. We obviously wish Buck was still with us, Kendrick said, but you know his spirit will fill Cooperstown. He often called the area where they do the induction the valley. And you just got a funny feeling that Buck's spirit is going to be all over the valley on Sunday. Angela Terry, O'Neill's niece, spoke on his behalf. If Uncle John were with us this afternoon, his usual spirit of humility and gratefulness would be on full display, Terry said. He would quickly deflect the limelight away from himself to focus upon those who loved, inspired, and supported his lifelong passion for baseball. O'Neill's induction comes two years after the museum celebrated the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Negro National League. It comes during a time of massive growth for the museum in terms of reach and financial contributions, something which Kendrick and community engagement manager Kiona Sinks hope to continue in the wake of O'Neill's induction. And it comes 16 years after O'Neill did not get inducted in 2006. There was a massive crowd at the museum that day. Everyone thought he was a shoe-in. Even O'Neill was excited. 
but Kendrick got the call late in the day that O'Neill didn't get in, and he had to deliver the news. Kendrick walked into the conference room on the second level of the museum and closed the door. He sat next to O'Neill and across from author Joe Posnaski, who traveled around the country with O'Neill for his book, The Soul of Baseball, a road trip through Buck O'Neill's America. Well, Buck, we didn't get enough votes, Kendrick said. O'Neill looked up at Kendrick. He smiled. And then he asked how many people did get in. Kendrick informed O'Neill that 17 other Negro League players were going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame, and O'Neill slammed the table in jubilation. The next words that came out of his mouth were, I wonder if the Hall of Fame will invite me to speak, Kendrick said. Kendrick and Posnaski were speechless. They were furious O'Neill hadn't gotten in. How could he move on so quickly? I had become such close friends with this great man who I understood was always positive, yet even in that moment, I still cannot figure it out, Bosnaski said. I said, you would do that? And he looked at me and said, son, what has my life been all about? That was what his life was about. O'Neill did speak on behalf of those Negro leaguers that summer, delivering a powerful address. He was sick at the time, something Kendrick can see in O'Neill's eyes when he rewatches the speech. But O'Neill was not going to miss that moment. You'll be hard-pressed to find anyone who has given the game of baseball more than Buck did, Kendrick said. O'Neill's impact extended from baseball fans to players. In the late 1990s, longtime pitcher Latroy Hawkins was a rookie with the Twins. During a series in Kansas City, Hawkins spotted O'Neill on the field during batting practice. He just had this aura about himself, like this charisma. And he looked like me, Hawkins said. I had to ask, who is that? Hawkins introduced himself to O'Neill and was surprised to find out that O'Neill knew exactly who Hawkins was. They struck up a friendship, and every time Hawkins was in Kansas City, he met up with O'Neill, taking teammates and family to the 18th and Vine District. My grandfather told me about the Negro Leagues because he had seen all the big stars, Hawkins said, Satchel Page, Josh Gibson. When I told him I met Buck O'Neill, he knew exactly who I was talking about. That is why O'Neill's Hall of Fame induction is important. The story of baseball from 1876 when the National League was founded to 2022 is incomplete without Buck O'Neill. You just can't, or at least you shouldn't, Kendrick said. He has been that meaningful and significant in the history of this game. Our game is better because of Buck and those who look like him. The Hall of Fame is going to be a better place because Buck O'Neill is in it. There are two images that go along with this story. The first shows the president of the Baseball Hall of Fame presenting a duplicate plaque to the niece of Buck O'Neill. The caption reads, Josh Rawich, president of the Baseball Hall of Fame, presents the Hall of Fame plaque to Dr. Angela Terry, the niece of the late John Jordan Buck O'Neill, who was inducted into the Hall of Fame on Sunday, July 24th in Cooperstown, New York. The next image is a close-up of that plaque. It has the image of Buck O'Neill. Below that image, it has his name, John Jordan O'Neill. Beneath that, it has his nickname, Buck. The inscription on the plaque reads, Character, integrity, and dignity defined a life dedicated to baseball as player, manager, scout, coach, and champion of Negro League's legacies. 
start at first base for Negro American League powerhouse Kansas City Monarchs of the late 1930s and 40s, winning Negro World Series in 1942. Took the helm as successful Monarchs manager of the 1940s through the mid-1950s. Scouted for the Cubs, helping numerous black players transition to the American and National Leagues then became first black coach in National League or American League history with Chicago in 1962. In later life, gave voice to the Negro Leagues, eloquently preserving its culture and legends. That was the article, John Buck O'Neill Takes His Place Among Legends in Baseball Hall of Fame Class of 2022. It was written by Ann Rogers and was published in the Kansas City Call newspaper on July 29, 2022. Our next reading is titled, The Obamas Will Finally Unveil Their Official White House Portraits This Fall. This article appeared at People.com on July 28, 2022, and was written by Kyler Alvord, capital A-L-V-O-R-D. The subtitle to this article is, Barack and Michelle Obama Will Soon Return to the White House for a Time-Honored Tradition That Cements Their Place in History. And according to an official, their portraits are extraordinary. A long-awaited moment for the Obama family is finally approaching. On September 7th, the 44th president and first lady will unveil their official White House portraits, which will hang permanently in the presidential residence. More than five years after President Barack Obama left office, he and Michelle will return to the White House at the invitation of President Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden to reveal the paintings. The official White House portraits are separate from the internet-breaking National Portrait Gallery paintings that the Obamas revealed in 2018. Stuart McLaurin, president of the White House Historical Association, tells people about the journey to reach this milestone and the significance of it all. More important than the time it took to create the portraits is the time that the portraits will be shared with the American public for generations to come, McLaurin says. That is really the significance of these portraits not to be rushed, but to be special and perfect for that president and first lady. As is tradition, the artists creating the portraits are kept anonymous until the unveiling, not only to keep the pressure off them as they fine-tune the paintings, but to add to the allure of the big reveal. Typically, the artists are selected around the time that a president and the first lady move out of the White House, McLaurin says, confirming that the Trump's portraits are already in the works. From there, the chosen artists have no deadlines to complete their pieces, which may undergo several small revisions before reaching the final look. We don't put a time frame on it. We don't call the artists and say, hey, how's it going? How you doing? When are you going to have it done? McLaurin says. It just is an organic process that has to take its course. Then when everything's ready and everything's done, the moment is right. The Obama's particular portraits have taken a while to enter public view, but McLaurin doesn't find it unusual, noting that every artist works differently and that the White House has been closed off to visitors for a couple of years anyway. You wouldn't want to do this at a time when the public wouldn't be able to come in and see the portraits, he explains. To fully appreciate the beauty of an official portrait in modern times, McLaurin says you have to think about the past. This sounds cliche, but you know... These original portraits are done long before we had Instagram and Facebook, so the portraits themselves were the image of that president and first lady that would be remembered in the public's eye, he explains. 
Now, a president has millions of digital photographs of their presidency. But in the early years of our country, it was these portraits that would show us what these presidents and first ladies actually looked like. He continues, Now it's a different process because we know exactly what all of our presidents and first ladies look like. But they selected artists and they work with that artist to show how they see themselves. The collaborative process allows for more personalization, a true ode to the figures being portrayed. Hillary Clinton's first lady portrait, for example, showed her in one of her staple power suits beside a table holding her 1996 book, It Takes a Village. The last portrait unveiling was a decade ago in 2012 when former President George W. Bush and former First Lady Laura Bush were welcomed back to be honored for their dedication to the nation. Every president is acutely aware that we are just temporary residents. We're renters here. We're charged with the upkeep until our lease runs out, President Obama said at the Bush's ceremony. But we also leave a piece of ourselves in this place. And today, with the unveiling of these portraits next to me, President and Mrs. Bush will take their place alongside the men and women who built this country and those who worked to perfect it. After the Obama ceremony in September, their portraits will rest on easels for a few days before finding a place on the walls of the White House. Traditionally, the two most recent presidential portraits are hung in the entrance hall, meaning President Obama would bump President Bill Clinton to a new spot. But it's not a hard and fast rule, and it's left to the discretion of the White House curators. The First Lady's portraits generally hang on the floor below. While the exact placement of the Obama's paintings are subject to change over time, one thing is for certain, that they will permanently reside in the White House. And according to McLaurin, the Obama portraits are extraordinary and very special just as they are. There are some photographs that go along with this story. The first shows President Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama walking down the stairs of Air Force One. The caption reads, Former President Barack Obama and former First Lady Michelle Obama arrived to President-elect Joe Biden's inauguration on January 20th at the U.S. Capitol. The next photograph shows the Bushes and the Obamas at a ceremony in which the Bushes' portraits are unveiled to the public. Michelle Obama is at the podium speaking to the audience. The caption reads, the Obamas host the first family preceding them for a portrait unveiling in 2012. That is a reading of the article, The Obamas Will Finally Unveil Their Official White House Portraits This Fall. It appeared at People.com, was written by Kyler Alvord, and was published July 28, 2022. Next up for today is an obituary. It's from the Chicago Sun-Times and its ChicagoSunTimes.com website. The title of the article is, Nichelle Nichols. Lieutenant Uhura on Star Trek dies at 89. It was written by Lindsay Barr and was published July 31st, 2022. The subtitle to this article is The Robins Natives Role in the 1966 through 1969 NBC series earned her accolades for breaking stereotypes. Nichelle Nichols, the suburban Chicago native who broke barriers for black women in Hollywood when she played communications officer Lieutenant Uhura on the original Star Trek television series, has died at the age of 89. Her son, Kyle Johnson, said Nichols died Saturday in Silver City, New Mexico. Last night, my mother, 
Nichelle Nichols succumbed to natural causes and passed away. Her light, however, like the ancient galaxies now being seen for the first time, will remain for us in future generations to enjoy, learn from, and draw inspiration, Johnson wrote on her official Facebook page Sunday. Hers was a life well-lived, as such a model for us all. Her role in the 1966-1969 series as Lieutenant Uhura earned Nichols a lifelong position of honor with the series' rabbit fans known as Trekkers and Trekkies. It also earned her accolades for breaking stereotypes that had limited black women to acting roles as servants and included an interracial on-screen kiss with co-star William Shatner that was unheard of at the time. I shall have more to say about the trailblazing incomparable Nichelle Nichols who shared the bridge with us as Lieutenant O'Hurl of the USS Enterprise and who passed today at age 89, George Takai wrote on Twitter. For today, my heart is heavy, my eyes shining like the stars you now rest among, my dearest friend. Takai played Sulu in the original Star Trek series alongside Nichols. But her impact was felt beyond her immediate co-stars and many others in the Star Trek world also tweeted their condolences. Celia Rose Gooding, who currently plays Uhura in Star Trek Strange New Worlds, wrote on Twitter that Nichols made room for so many of us. She was the reminder that not only can we reach the stars, but our influence is essential to their survival. Forget shaking the table, she built it. Star Trek Voyager alum Kate Mulgrew tweeted, Nichelle Nichols was the first. She was a trailblazer who navigated a very challenging trail with grit, grace, and a gorgeous fire we are not likely to see again. Like other original cast members, Nichols also appeared in six big screen spinoffs starting in 1979 with Star Trek The Motion Picture and frequented Star Trek fan conventions. She also served as many years as a NASA recruiter helping bring minorities and women into the astronaut corps. More recently, she had a recurring role on television's Heroes playing the great aunt of a young boy with mystical powers. The original Star Trek premiered on NBC on September 8, 1966. Its multicultural, multiracial cast was creator Gene Roddenberry's message to viewers that in the far-off future, the 23rd century, human diversity would be fully accepted. I think many people took it into their hearts that what was being said on TV at that time was a reason to celebrate, Nichols said in 1992, when a Star Trek exhibit was on view at the Smithsonian Institution. She often recalled how Martin Luther King Jr. was a fan of the show and praised her role. She met with him at a civil rights gathering in 1967 at a time when she had decided not to return for the show's second season. When I told him I was going to miss my co-stars and I was leaving the show, he became very serious and said, you cannot do that, she told the Tulsa, Oklahoma World in a 2008 interview. You've changed the face of television forever, and therefore you've changed the minds of people, she said the civil rights leader later told her. The foresight Dr. King had was a lightning bolt in my life, Nichols said. During the show's third season, Nichols' character and Shatner's Captain James Kirk shared what was described as the first interracial kiss to be broadcast on a United States television series. In the episode, Plato's Stepchildren, their characters, who always maintain a platonic relationship, were forced into the kiss by aliens who were controlling their actions. The kiss suggested that there was a future where these issues were not such a big deal. Eric Deggins, a television critic for National Public Radio, told the Associated Press in 2018.
The characters themselves were not freaking out because a black woman was kissing a white man. In this utopian-like future, we solve this issue. We're beyond it. That was a wonderful message to send. Worry about reaction from Southern television stations, showrunners wanted to film a second take of the scene where the kiss happened off screen. But Nichols said in her 2014 book, Beyond Uhura, Star Trek and Other Memories, that she and Shatner deliberately flubbed lines to force the original take to be used. Despite concerns, the episode aired without blowback. In fact, it got the most fan mail that Paramount had ever gotten on Star Trek for one episode, Nichols said in a 2010 interview with the Archive of American Television. She was born Grace Dell Nichols in Robbins, Illinois, the child of artist and postal worker Samuel Nichols Jr. and Velma Nichols. As a child, she hated being called Gracie, which everyone insisted on, she said in the 2010 interview. When she was a teen, her mother told her she had wanted to name her Michelle, but thought she ought to have alliterative initials like Marilyn Monroe, whom Nichols loved, hence Nichelle. Nichols first worked professionally as a singer and dancer in Chicago at age 14, moving on to New York nightclubs and working for a time with the Duke Ellington and Lionel Hampton bands before coming to Hollywood for her film debut in 1959's Porgy and Bess, the first of several small film and TV roles that led up to her Star Trek stardom. Nichols was known as being unafraid to stand up to Shatner on the set when others complained that he was stealing scenes in camera time. They later learned she had a strong supporter in the show's creator. In Beyond Uhura, she says she met Roddenberry when she guest starred on his show, The Lieutenant, and the two had an affair a couple of years before Star Trek began. The two remained lifelong close friends. Another fan of Nichols and the show was future astronaut Mae Jemison, who became the first black woman in space when she flew aboard the shuttle Endeavour in 1992. In an Associated Press interview before her flight, Jemison said she watched Nichols on Star Trek all the time, adding she loved the show. Jemison eventually got to meet Nichols. Nichols was a regular at Star Trek conventions and events into her 80s. But her schedule became limited started in 2018 when her son announced that she was suffering from advanced dementia. There are some pictures that go along with this article. The first shows Miss Nichols on the set of Star Trek. Nichelle Nichols as Lieutenant Niyota Uhura in a Star Trek that aired on January 19, 1967. The South Suburban Robbins native died on Saturday. The next photograph is a black and white photograph of Nichelle Nichols on the set of Star Trek. The caption reads, Nichelle Nichols first played Lieutenant Uhura in 1966 at a time when black women usually were cast as servants. That was a reading of the article, Nichelle Nichols, Lieutenant Uhura on Star Trek, dies at 89. It appeared at the ChicagoSunTimes.com website, was written by Lindsay Barr, and was published July 31st, 2022. Next on today's program is a story from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and its stltoday.com website. The title of the article is Feds Raid Activist Home in St. Louis as Part of Russian Influence Investigation. It was written by Jesse Bogan. It was published on July 9th, 2022, at the stltoday.com website. As chairman of the African People's Socialist Party, Omali Yeshatala, capital O-M-A-L-I, 
capital Y-E-S-H-I-T-E-L-A, wears a black beret with a red star on it. He calls people comrade. He said he's traveled to the likes of Nicaragua and Russia for years to speak about the ongoing implications of colonialism on black people. Yeshatella, 80, whose roots are in St. Petersburg, Florida, said he eventually set up shop here in North St. Louis in 2017 because the protest movement following the police shooting of Michael Brown inspired him. Home base is a 9,000-square-foot Uhuru house, an event space named after the word freedom in Swahili and an international movement Yashatella founded in 1991. Yashatella and affiliated organizations have since torn down a handful of derelict properties in North City with intentions to rebuild, opened a community garden, and fielded two candidates for Board of Aldermen who unsuccessfully ran with reparations at the top of their platforms. Somewhere along the line, the feds apparently saw too many red flags. On Friday morning, agents stormed Yashatella's home in the 4400 block of Redbud Avenue. Affiliated properties on the 4600 block of Gravois Avenue and in Florida were also raided as part of an ongoing investigation into a Russian influence campaign. Yashatella said agents showed up around 5 a.m. with at least one armored vehicle. He said they tossed flash grenades and broke windows. They actually sent a drone into the house. They forced us out of the house at gunpoint, Yeshatella said at a 12.30 p.m. press conference on his front steps on Redbud. He was flanked by more than a dozen supporters who viewed the raid as a threat against organizing in the black community. Yeshatella and his wife, Anna Zene Yeshatella, were detained at the property and eventually released. He said he never saw a search warrant. Federal agents left them with a document that they said took the following items from the home. Two iPhones, Apple Watch, iPad, flash drives, hard drives, laptops, yellow notepads, and assorted legal and financial documents. It's unclear what was taken from the Gravois address, but a man who was there said he was also detained at gunpoint before being released. In an email, Joshua Morrell, acting assistant special agent in charge of the FBI in St. Louis, described the Missouri raids as court-authorized law enforcement activity involved in an ongoing investigation that on Friday included unsealing of the indictment of a Russian national. Alexander Viktorovich, capital A-L-E-K-S-A-N-D-R, capital V-I-K-T-O-R-O, V-I-C-H, Ionov, capital I-O-N-O-V, founder and president of the anti-globalization movement of Russia, was charged with one count of conspiracy to defraud the United States. According to the indictment, he, along with officers in Russia's Internal Security and Counterintelligence Service, allegedly used members of U.S. political groups as foreign agents of Russia within the United States without notification to the attorney general. Ionov allegedly recruited members of the various groups within the United States and other countries, including Ukraine, to attend Russian conferences that encouraged them to advocate for separating from their home countries. Partnerships were allegedly formed that provided financial support to the groups that would publish pro-Russian propaganda, as well as other information designed to cause dissension in the United States and to promote secessionist ideologies. In one instance, on August 3, 2015, Ionoff allegedly urged somebody who lived in St. Petersburg, Florida and St. Louis, Missouri to write a petition 
ASAP to the United Nations alleging the United States had committed genocide against African people in the United States and to send the petition to the United Nations office in New York, as well as websites for the White House and Change.org. An attorney for Ionov couldn't be reached by the Post-Dispatch on Friday. The indictment says the U.S. groups in question were based in Florida, Georgia, and California. None of the groups nor their leaders were formally named. Yashatella said he was one of them. He hasn't been charged with a crime. He said he hosted his own press conference Friday to counter the federal narrative. He said he knew Ionov and had gone on two paid trips to Russia. He said he attended an anti-globalization conference there, but that he's been battling colonialism for 50 years. The U.S. government is attempting to use us, the African People's Socialist Party and the Uhuru movement, as pawns in the struggle that they are engaged in trying to deal with the clear political and economic change that is happening in the configuration of power in the world, Yashatella said. And they see themselves as contending with Russia. Russia is a bone in their throat. He said his association with Ionov wasn't enough to justify raiding his home. He said they take donations from a wide variety of contributors. Don't tell us we can't have friends that you don't like, he said. He said he thinks there were several reasons for the federal action. One is because of our effectiveness struggling for black people and black power in this country and around the world, especially in St. Louis, he said. In an in-depth post-dispatch report in 2020, about Yeshatella and his affiliates in St. Louis, they said they aren't waiting for a top-down reparations windfall from the government. Instead, they were using private donations to fund development, mainly in the form of direct donations from white people who were fed up with the city being divided. They said they were using the money and other resources to empower the black community to become economically and politically self-reliant. Black is back was the refrain shouted at events and printed in their own broadsheet newspaper. The mantra of their political party was lead the struggle of the African working class and oppressed masses against U.S. capitalist, colonialist domination and all the manifestations of oppression and exploitation that result from this relationship. A recent post-dispatch request for an update on their various projects in the region wasn't provided. Yeshatella said they were delayed by COVID and other factors. One of the pictures that goes along with this article shows a group of people standing out in front of a brick house. The caption reads, Omali Yeshatela, center, stands in front of his home in the 4400 block of Redbud Avenue on Friday, July 29th, 2022, with his supporters. The next photograph is a picture of a police officer and government officials standing at a press conference in St. Petersburg, Florida. On the wall behind them is the police shield of the St. Petersburg, Florida police. The Florida flag is to the right. The United States flag is to the left. The caption reads, U.S. Attorney Roger B. Hanberg, alongside St. Petersburg Police Chief Anthony Holloway, and FBI Special Agent David Walker speaks to the reporters at St. Petersburg Police Department headquarters on Friday, July 29, 2022, in St. Petersburg, Florida. Alexander Viktorovich Ionov, a Russian operative under the supervision of one of the Kremlin's main intelligence services, has been charged with recruiting political groups in the United States to advance pro-Russia propaganda, including during the invasion of Ukraine, the Justice Department said. 
In this case, the authorities say INOF from 2014 through last March recruited political groups in Florida, Georgia, and California and directed them to spread pro-Russia talking points. That was a reading of the article, Feds Raid Activist Home in St. Louis as Part of Russian Influence Investigation. It was written by Jesse Bogan. It was published July 29, 2022 at the stltoday.com website. Up next is another obituary. Bill Russell, who transformed pro basketball, dies at 88. This obituary appeared at the nytimes.com website. It was written by Richard Goldstein and was published July 31, 2022. The subtitle to the article is, A Hall of Famer Who Led the Celtics to 11 Championships, He Was the Single Most Devastating Force in the History of the Game, His Coach Red Auerbach Said. Even before the opening tip-off at Boston Celtics games, Bill Russell evoked domination. Other players ran onto the court for their introductions, but he walked on, slightly stooped. I'd look at everybody disdainfully, like a sleepy dragon who can't be bothered to scare off another would-be hero, he recalled. I wanted my look to say, hey, the king's here tonight. Russell's awesome rebounding triggered a Celtic fast break that overwhelmed the rest of the NBA. His quickness and his uncanny ability to block shots transformed the center position, once a spot for slow and hulking types, and changed the face of pro basketball. Russell, who propelled the Celtics to 11 NBA championships, the final two when he became the first black head coach in a major American sports league, died on Sunday. He was 88. His death was announced by his family, who did not say where he died. When Russell was elected to the Basketball Hall of Fame in 1975, Red Auerbach, who orchestrated his arrival as a Celtic and coached him on nine championship teams, called him the single most devastating force in the history of the game. He was not alone in that view. In a 1980 poll of basketball writers, long before Michael Jordan and LeBron James entered the scene, Russell was voted nothing less than the greatest player in NBA history. Former Senator Bill Bradley, who faced Russell with the Knicks in the 1960s, viewed him as the smartest player ever to play the game and the epitome of a team leader. At his core, Russell knew that he was different from other players, that he was an innovator, and that his very identity depended on dominating the game, Bradley wrote in reviewing Russell's remembrances of Auerbach in Red and Me, My Coach, My Lifelong Friend, 2009 for the New York Times. In the decades that followed Russell's retirement in 1969, when flashy moves delighted fans and team play was often an afterthought, his stature was burnished even more, remembered for his ability to enhance the talents of his teammates, even as he dominated the action and to do so without much bravado. He disdained dunking or gesturing to celebrate his feats. In those later years, his signature goatee now turned white, Russell reappeared on the court at springtime, presenting the most valuable player of the NBA championships with the trophy named for him in 2009. Russell was remembered as well for his visibility on civil rights issues. He took part in the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom and was seated in the front row of the crowd to hear the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. deliver his I Have a Dream speech. He went to Mississippi after the civil rights activist Metgar Evers was murdered and worked with Evers' brother, Charles, to open an integrated basketball camp in Jackson. He was among a group of prominent black athletes who supported Muhammad Ali when Ali refused induction into the armed forces during the Vietnam War. 
President Barack Obama awarded Russell the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest civilian award at the White House in 2011, honoring him as someone who stood up for the rights and dignity of all men. In September 2017, following President Donald J. Trump's calling the NFL owners to fire players who were taking a knee during the national anthem to protest racial injustice, Russell posted a photo on Twitter in which he posed taking a knee while holding the medal. What I wanted was to let those guys know I support them, he told ESPN. The next section is titled A Much Decorated Man. Russell was the ultimate winner. He led the University of San Francisco to NCAA tournament championships in 1955 and 1956. He won a gold medal with the United States Olympic basketball team in 1956. He led the Celtics to eight consecutive NBA titles from 1959 to 1966, far eclipsing the Yankees' five straight World Series victories, 1949 to 1953, and the Montreal Canadiens' five consecutive Stanley Cup championships, 1956 to 1960. He was the NBA's most valuable player five times and an all-star 12 times. A reedy, towering figure at 6 foot 10 and 220 pounds, Russell was cagey under the basket, able to anticipate an opponent's shots and gain position for a rebound. And if the ball caromed off the hoop, his tremendous leaping ability almost guaranteed that he'd grab it. He finished his career as the number two rebounder in NBA history behind his longtime rival Wilt Chamberlain, who had three inches on him. Russell pulled down 21,620 rebounds, an astonishing average of 22.5 per game, with a single-game high of 51 against the Syracuse Nationals, the forerunners of the Philadelphia 76ers in 1960. He didn't have much of a shooting touch, but he scored 14,522 points, many on high-percentage short left-handed hook shots for an average of 15.1 per game. He blocked three shots. The total is unrecorded because such records were not kept in his era, altered games. Beyond the court, Russell could appear aloof. He was bruised by the humiliations his family had faced when he was young in segregated Louisiana and by widespread racism in Boston. When he joined the Celtics in 1956, he was their only black player. Early in the 1960s, his home in Reading, Massachusetts was vandalized. Russell's primary allegiance was always to his teammates, not to the city of Boston or to the fans. Guarding his privacy and shunning displays of adulation, he refused to sign autographs for fans or even as keepsakes for his teammates. When the Celtics retired his number six in March 1972, the event, at his insistence, was a private ceremony in Boston Garden. He ignored his election to the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame, situated squarely in Celtics country in Springfield, Massachusetts, and refused to attend the induction. In each case, my intention was to separate myself from the star's idea about fans and fans' ideas about stars, Russell said, in Second Wind, The Memoirs of an Opinionated Man, 1979, written by Taylor Branch. I have very little faith in cheers, what they mean and how long they will last, compared with the faith I have in my own love for the game. The next section is titled, Racial Scars, A Mother Lost. William Felton Russell was born on February 12, 1934 in Monroe, Louisiana, where his father Charles worked in a paper bag factory. He remembered a warm home life but a childhood seared by racism. 
He recalled that a police officer once threatened to arrest his mother, Katie, because she was wearing a stylish outfit like those favored by white women. A gas station attendant sought to humble his father while Bill was with him by refusing to provide service, an episode that ended with Charles Russell chasing the man while brandishing a tire iron. When Bill was nine years old, the family moved to Oakland, California. His mother died when he was 12, leaving his father, who had opened a trucking business and then worked in a foundry to bring up Bill and his brother Charles Jr., teaching them, as Russell Long remembered, to work hard and covet self-worth and self-reliance. At McClemens High School in Oakland, Russell became a starter on the basketball team as a senior, already emphasizing defense and rebounding. A former basketball player at the University of San Francisco, Hal DeJulio, who scouted for his alma mater, recognized Russell's potential and recommended him to the coach, Phil Woolpert. Russell was given a scholarship and became an All-American, teaming up with the guard Casey Jones, a future Celtic teammate, in leading San Francisco to NCAA championships in his last two seasons. Following a loss to UCLA in Russell's junior year, the team won 55 straight games. He averaged more than 20 points and 20 rebounds a game for his three varsity seasons. No one had ever played basketball the way I played it, or as well, Russell told Sport Magazine in 1963, recalling his college career. They had never seen anyone block shots before. Now I'll be conceited. I like to think I originated a whole new style of play. In the mid-50s, the Celtics had a highly talented team featuring Bob Cousy, the league's greatest small man, and the sharpshooting Bill Sharman at guard and Ed McCauley, a fine shooter up front. But lacking a dominant center, they had never won a championship. The Rochester Royals owned the number one selection in the 1956 NBA draft, but they already had an outstanding big man, Maurice Stokes, and were unwilling to wage what their owner, Les Harrison, believed would be a bidding war for Russell with the Harlem Globetrotters, who were reportedly willing to offer him a lucrative deal. So the Royals drafted Sir Hugo Green, capital S-I-H-U-G-O, a guard from Duquesne. The St. Louis Hawks had the number two draft pick, but they too did not think they could afford Russell. Auerbach persuaded them to trade that selection to the Celtics for Macaulay, a St. Louis native, and Cliff Hagen, a promising rookie. That enabled Boston to take Russell. Russell did meet with the Globetrotters that spring, but as he stated in a 1958 collaboration with Al Hirschberg for the Saturday Evening Post, he did not seriously consider signing with them. He found the prospect of year-long worldwide travel unappealing and wrote how their specialty is clowning and I had no intention of being billed as a funny guy in a basketball uniform. Russell led the United States Olympic team to a gold medal in the 1956 Melbourne Games, then joined the Celtics in December. Playing in 48 games as a rookie, he averaged 19.6 points. That Celtic team, with Russell, Cousy, Sharman, the high-scoring rookie Tom Heinsohn, the bruising Jim Luskatoff, and Frank Ramsey, won the franchise's first NBA title, defeating the Hawks in the finals. The next section of the article is titled, Enter Chamberlain. Russell captured his first MVP award in his second season, but this time the Hawks beat the Celtics for the championship, pulling away after Russell injured an ankle in Game 3 of the finals. The next year, the Celtics won the title again, beginning their run of eight straight championships. In Russell's fourth season, 1959-60, the 7'1", 275-pound Chamberlain entered the NBA with the Philadelphia Warriors. 
Chamberlain led the league in scoring as a rookie with 37.6 points per game and eclipsed Russell in rebounding, averaging 27 per game to Russell's 24. But the Celtics were champions once more. Russell was agile, Chamberlain the epitome of strength and power. Russell was usually outscored and out-rebounded by Chamberlain in their matchups, but the Celtics won most of those games. If I had played for the Celtics instead of Russell, I doubt they would have been as great, Chamberlain was quoted as saying in 1996 when the NBA's 50 greatest players were selected to mark the league's 50th season, though not ranked in any particular order. As Chamberlain put it, Bill Russell and the Celtics were the perfect fit. Russell, friendly with Chamberlain off the court, was complimentary in turn. I know they talk about me winning more championships, but I don't know how that can be held against Wilt, he said. We beat everybody. It wasn't just Wilt. The Russell-Chamberlain rivalry was fierce. Russell intimidated him, Cousy recalled, in Cousy on the Celtic Mystique 1988, written with Bob Ryan. Wilt can say what he wants, but I used to watch Wilt muscle in against everybody else, but not against Russell. Russell's tactics was to play close to Chamberlain, forcing him to lean away from the basket, change the angle of his fadeaway jump shots, and release them farther from the basket than he liked. Russell bested Chamberlain in another way. In his prime, as he told it, his annual salary was $101,000, one dollar more than Chamberlain was making. Russell was an intense competitor. And though he contended that he was not nervous in the moments before games, he engaged in an often remarked upon ritual in the locker room. I threw up, but I was never sick, he told the Boston Globe in 2009. It was a way for my body to get rid of all excesses. As described by the Celtics forward John Havlicek, it was a tremendous sound, almost as loud as his laugh. He doesn't do it much now except when it's an important game or important challenge to him. Someone like Chamberlain or someone coming up that everyone's touting, Havlicek told Sports Illustrated in December 1968. It was a welcome sound, too, because it means he's keyed up for the game. And around the locker room, we grin and say, man, we're going to be all right tonight. Russell made shot blocking an art, Auerbach recalled in Red Auerbach, an autobiography, 1977, written with Joe Fitzgerald. He would pop the ball straight up and grab it like a rebound, or else redirect it right into the hands of one of his teammates, and we'd be off and running on the fast break. You never saw Russell bat a ball into the third balcony the way those other guys did. Russell was not the first black head coach in professional sports, but he had the greatest impact as the first to be chosen in 1966 to lead a team in one of America's major sports leagues. Fritz Pollard, a star running back, had coached in the National Football League, but that was in the 1920s when it was a fledgling operation. John McClendon coached the Cleveland Pipers of the American Basketball League in 1961 to 1962, but the ABL was a secondary attraction. The Celtics' streak of eight consecutive titles was snapped in Russell's first year as coach, but it took one of the NBA's greatest teams to do it. The 1966-1967 Celtics had a 60-21 regular season record, but they lost in the Eastern Conference playoff finals to the Philadelphia 76ers, who had gone 68-13 with a lineup that included Chamberlain, Luke Jackson, Chet Walker, Hal Greer, and Billy Cunningham. The next section of the article is titled, A Changed View of Boston. As the Celtic players from Russell's rookie year retired, Auerbach found superb replacements, most notably Havlicek at forward, and at guard Sam Jones and Casey Jones, Russell's old college teammate. 
The Celtics won NBA titles in Russell's last two seasons when he was their player coach. He capped their career with a triumph in the 1969 NBA Finals over a Laker team that had obtained Chamberlain and also featured Jerry West and Elgin Baylor. Russell could not easily shake his memories of Boston during his playing days when the fate of the city's de facto segregated schools became a national story. To me, Boston itself was a flea market of racism, Russell wrote in Second Wind. It had all varieties, old and new, and in their most virulent form. The city had corrupt City Hall crony racists, brick-throwing send-them-back-to-Africa racists, and in the university areas, phony radical chic racists long before they appeared in New York. But as time passed, the city changed, and so did his perception of it. Russell helped promote Boston with a radio spot in the weeks leading up to the 2004 Democratic National Convention, which was held there. I think there are a lot of things that are happening to make it an open city where everybody is included and there's nobody that's deemed unworthy, he said. Boston honored Russell in 2013 with a bronze statue in City Hall Plaza. In his late years, Cousy became remorseful about his failure to speak out against the racism Russell faced when they were teammates, and in February 2016, he sent him a letter expressing regret. As related by Mr. Gary M. Pomerantz in his book, The Last Pass, Cousy, Russell, the Celtics, and What Matters in the End, 2018, Cousy did not hear from Russell until two and a half years had passed. Then Russell phoned him. Cousy asked Russell if he had received the letter. Russ said he had. Pomerantz wrote, nothing more was said about it. Coos had hoped their conversation would rise to a more substantive level. Still, he had made his last pass to Russ. He felt at peace. Russell worked as an ABC sports commentator for NBA games in the early 1970s. His high-pitched cackling laugh on the air showing viewers a side of him that only his teammates had seen. Then he returned to coaching. He became coach and general manager of the Seattle Supersonics in 1973, taking over a team that had never been in the playoffs in its six seasons and led them to a pair of playoff berths in his four seasons there. He became the coach of the Sacramento Kings in 1987, but was removed in March 1988 with the team mired in a 17-41 and record. He was named vice president in charge of basketball operations. He was fired from that post in December 1989. Long after his NBA career had ended, Russell made himself more accessible and capitalized on commercial opportunities. In 1999, he agreed to a public ceremony at the Fleet Center, the successor to Boston Garden, for the 30th anniversary of his last championship team and his retirement as a player as well as the second retirement of his number. The event was also a fundraiser for the National Mentoring Partnership whose programs he had helped develop as a board member. There are no other people's kids in this country, he told the crowd. They're the children of the nation. I refuse to be at war with them. I'll always be doing anything I can to make life better for a kid. He made commercial signed autographs for serious collectors for a fee and delivered motivational speeches. Russell married for the fourth time to Janine Fiorito, capital F-I-O-R-I-T-O, in 2016. His first marriage to Rose Swisher ended in divorce, as did his second marriage to Dorothy Anstead. His third wife, Marilyn Nault, died in 2009 at 59. Russell had three children from his first marriage, William Jr., Jacob, and Karen Kenyatta Russell. William Jr., known as Buddha, 
died in 2016 at 58. Russell's brother, a playwright and screenwriter under the name Charlie L. Russell, died in 2013 at 81. Complete information on survivors was not immediately available. Russell was uncompromising when it came to his principles. There are two societies in this country, and I have to recognize it, to see life for what it is and not go stark raving mad, he told Sport Magazine in 1963, referring to the racial divide. I don't work for acceptance. I am what I am. If you like it, that's nice. If not, I couldn't care less. He also was an immensely proud man. If you can take something to levels that very few other people can reach, he told Sports Illustrated in 1999, then what you're doing becomes art. There are some photographs that go along with this story. One is a black and white photograph showing Russell wearing his number six jersey with his arm around Celtics coach Red Auerbach. He's holding a basketball in his other hand. The caption reads, Bill Russell with his coach Red Auerbach in December 1964 after scoring his 10,000th career point in a game in Boston Garden. In a 1980 poll of basketball writers, he was voted the greatest player in NBA history. Next, we have a color photo of Russell in a game blocking a shot. The caption reads, Russell blocking a shot in 1964 in a game against the Philadelphia 76ers in Boston. His quickness and uncanny ability to block shots transformed the center position. The next photo shows Russell receiving the Presidential Medal of Freedom from then-President Barack Hussein Obama. The caption reads, Russell received the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest civilian award in 2011. President Barack Obama honored him as someone who stood up for the rights and dignity of all men. Next is a black and white photograph that shows the Boston Celtics during a timeout of a basketball game. The caption reads, Russell looks at the camera during a timeout in the waning moments of a playoff game with the 76ers. The next image is a black and white photograph that shows Russell being carried off the basketball court by a crowd of fans. The caption reads, fans carry Russell, Tommy Henson, and Auerbach off the court at Boston Garden in 1964 after the Celtics won their sixth consecutive NBA championship defeating the Warriors. The next photograph shows Bill Russell in a suit sitting on the bench as a coach. The caption reads, in his last two seasons with the Celtics, with Russell as player coach, the team won the NBA championship. The next photograph is a picture of an older Bill Russell with a gray goatee, wearing glasses, and there's a trophy beside him. The caption to this photograph reads, In 2009, the Most Valuable Player Award for the NBA Finals was renamed the Bill Russell NBA Finals Most Valuable Player Award. Russell attended the news conference where the name change was announced. That was a reading of the obituary. Bill Russell, who transformed pro basketball, dies at 88. It appeared at the nytimes.com website. It was written by Richard Goldstein and was published July 31st, 2022. We're going to wrap up today's African American Hour with an audiobook review from audiophilemagazine.com. The title of the book is The Door of No Return. It was written by Kwame Alexander and is read 
by Kavna Holdbrook-Smith. It will take about three and a half hours to listen to this book, which was published in 2022. British Ghanaian performer Kavna Holdbrook-Smith lends his vocal talents to this trilogy opener, which finds 11-year-old Kofi thrust through the titular door into the middle passage. Before this happens, however, listeners are immersed in Kofi's rich, full life in the Asante village of Upper Quanta, where he navigates friendship, rivalry, school, and a crush. Modulating easily among characters, Holdbrook Smith's protean voice evokes the pompous tones of Kofi's teacher, the plummy accent of his British captors, the indifferent nasality of the American seaman who counts him aboard the slaver, and Kofi's every emotion along the way. The text's free verse line breaks are largely inaudible where they are heard, as when Kofi reluctantly, word by word, tries to stop time in the moment before his capture. The effect is haunting. That was a review of the audiobook, The Door of No Return. The book was written by Kwame Alexander. It is read by Kavna Holdbrook-Smith. And this review was found at the website audiophilemagazine.com. That's going to do it for today's African-American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner. Thank you for listening.